So today uh, we live in what some have called a disenchanted world where things are sort of stripped of uh, meaning, right? Outside of their bare scientific descriptions, right? So stars, they don't tell us anything. They are just big flaming balls of gas. It's difficult in this way, I think, for us modern good people to believe in things we read in the Bible, um, in that little book. It's hard for us to believe in God. God incarnate in human persons, spirits, souls, all these things. I was recently part of this clergy conversation group. We're all sitting in a room in a church together, and other pastors were complaining about the various denominations that they're a part of, right? And, you know, they're like Lutherans and Methodists and all that stuff. And people were like, oh, my denomination won't uh, ordain gay clergy, right? Or the Catholic Church won't uh, allow women to be priests. And a lot of complaining about the various ways their denominations were being exclusive towards people. And so I went on this impassioned rant um, about forming, we should form new faith groups, right? Um, not just church plants, but movements, like bigger movements of people who, in this current reality of difficult belief, um, could pursue Christian things unencumbered by these debates and scandals that consume our current religious institutions and denominations, right? Equality for women, um, LGBT question is not even a question for us, radical politics, all these things we want. Um, and the people in the group, as I was like, you know, ranting, raving, uh, they started getting excited. They're getting excited, and someone asked me, what do you think this new movement would claim about Christianity, or claim about what is true about Christianity? Which is a hell of a difficult question, right? And as I was thinking about it, she said, I don't think such movements really uh, would actually need to make claims about what we believe. All we would need is to have shared practices that we do together. And people in the group are like, oh yeah, yeah, I like that, right? And I sat there, you know, me, um, I didn't like that that much, but <laughs> it didn't sit well with me for certain reasons, but I'll come back to that in a moment. The story of what this person in this clergy group was saying um, is, exemplifies a little bit this tension between what we might call orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right? Orthodoxy is an emphasis on having the correct beliefs, Orthopraxy is an emphasis on the right practices or rituals. It's an age-old tension as far as the history of Christianity goes, right? And one that is often generalized in like the Catholic Church versus the Protestant Church in the uh, post-Reformation, right? The Catholic Church, which has historically um, emphasized the correct performance of rites, R-I-T-E-S, and uh, doing things in a very particular way in order for one to be saved and so forth. And the Reformation, which wanted to flatten those structures of power and emphasize that each individual, if you believe the right things, if you confess with your heart, you could be saved, right? Salvation by works, salvation by faith. In this world um, of disenchantment, right, I've seen the pendulum sort of swing these days back towards this orthopraxy, this kind of Catholic idea of religion, um, even for Protestants, right? It's one of the reasons I think a lot of disenfranchised evangelicals end up at like Anglican or Episcopalian churches. Um, we all know these people. And uh, it's the same reason why I'll go to these like progressive church planter conferences and I'll talk with people and they'll always be like, oh, we should like form a community where we uh, de-emphasize dogma and like instead focus on stuff like eating together and sharing meals. <laughs> which you know, may sound familiar to you in a way. Um, and it's why in some ways this woman in this group uh, said what she said about we don't need a statement of belief. Right? Instead, we only need to share practices together. It makes sense, right? When things get complicated and our brains 
um, are trying to hold together and are tied in a knot by sort of ambivalence and ambiguous stuff. Um, just going back to what feels real in our hands uh, is nice sometimes. There's a particular ritual, if you'll allow me to use that description, um, that I do with my family every time I fly home. Right? Korean barbecue is the hot shit these days. Uh, white people are flooding the restaurants, causing wait times that very much annoy me. And everyone outside of LA is honestly eating an inferior version of Korean barbecue. Because what the LA Koreans did was that they had this innovation. They took a very thin, chewy, beautiful little square of rice paper. And they would use this rice paper. You'd put the meat in, you'd put the vegetables in, you'd put the sauce or some in there, and then you'd wrap it all up and eat it, right? Usually if you've gone to Korean barbecue, you've seen people here use like lettuce to wrap things, which is savagery in my opinion, right? It's an atrocity. The LA way is so much better, this chewy texture that you get with this rice cake, right? It's my favorite thing in the world to eat. I'm so mad that it's not anywhere else except for in LA and in Korea. Um, in fact, one time I was in New York with Neil and a friend of mine had told me there's this one restaurant in New York that has the rice paper thing. And I got so excited. Neil and I went over there and they didn't have it. And I got so mad that I just sat there in silence like, <laughs> like a toddler. <laughs> I think I ate like three pieces of meat and like Neil loves that story because it. Just, <laughs> Um, I'm not a hangry kind of person, but if I don't get what I truly anticipate, uh, I do become a bit of a toddler. So, when I go home, every time I go home, the very first meal I eat is this kind of barbecue cooked in the house, right, in my parents' house. It's such a big thing that my father will come pick me up from the airport, and while we're driving back home, which is about an hour drive, my mom is already at home putting all this stuff together. I'm very spoiled. I have a, um, a complicated relationship with my parents, my father in particular. He's not a talkative, gregarious man. He doesn't actually talk very much at all to anybody except for my mother. And when he picks me up from that airport, the car ride is almost all silent, like no words, right? And when we get home and we're all eating there, eating this wonderful thing, there's actually very little conversation. I see them, you know, once every five, six months, like, how are you doing? How is the church going? How are you feeling about this profession that you are doing that I also do and your mother also does, right? Just basic questions that you might think a normal human being would ask of someone else, let alone your child. But there is little of that, almost nothing but that sound of the sizzling meat. And when I think about that with some honesty in my most uh, vulnerable moments, right, in my therapist chair, it makes me sad, right? There's this a neat need for recognition and support that I have, this, that comes from you know, little Tim all the way up through today. And I hate that, but it's there. I once tried to tell them very explicitly, uh, see me, right, acknowledge me, like I'm you know, trying to do this thing in this world that you did, like why don't you talk to me about it? And their response was to just start calling me Pastor Tim all the time. <laughs> So they call me on the phone. Hi, Pastor Tim. They write me an email. Dear Pastor Tim. No questions, just Pastor Tim. Uh, it's kind of sweet, but it's also very weird. And it's unsatisfying, you know. But while I'm there in that moment, that, the 
that silent car ride, that silent meal, eating that favorite thing. There's, of course, an immense comfort there as well, right? I feel um, like things make some sort of sense again. I feel cared for. I feel satisfied in some ways as well. Today's gospel passage from John is interesting for a couple of reasons. Um, Jesus is having a conversation with a big group of people. He had uh, just fed, right? There's that famous story um, of Jesus taking a couple loaves and fishes and multiplying it into, uh, I don't know, thousands, right? And feeding thousands of people. So he just fed them. He's crossed the lake. They chase him over there. Um, and in this conversation, he starts saying weird stuff to them about, uh, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread from heaven. People start getting upset. They're very confused. Um, they become agitated, right? They don't understand what he means by this stuff. Is he talking about cannibalism? Is he saying to actually eat his body? How can this man give us flesh to eat, they ask. At this point, Jesus actually doubles down on what he's saying. Um, obnoxious discourse, as one commentator put it, or trolling, as we might call it today. Uh, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise them up at the last day, right? And the obnoxious part about it is that the word eat there that's chosen by the writer is different than the previous usage of eat in, in, different ver- in uh, previous verses, right? It's a word in that verse that depicts sort of gnawing or chewing or munching, um, sort of desperate like an animal. It's a very uh, powerful, physical, visceral image. Most biblical commentators also point out two interesting things about this passage. One is that John, the Gospel of John, doesn't have the common story of the Last Supper Eucharist thing where um, we all do the Jesus is with his disciples and he breaks the bread and says, take me. John doesn't have that story, right? So this little part that we read is kind of John's version of the Eucharist story or the communion story. And the second thing that's interesting to people is that if you listen carefully to what Jesus is saying in this little section, he is sort of de-emphasizing belief as a necessary component for a relationship with him, right? He's instead emphasizing a practice, eating this meal, eating his body. The history of the communion ritual, I, I think I promised something like this in the email. I'm, it's not going to be quite that. Um, but the history of the communion meal, the Eucharist, as it's formally called, is long and varied. It's sort of, it's a lot of, I mean, I did the research, right? It was kind of boring. So many different interpretations, a lot of fighting with people, right? Um, suffice to say, people have thought a lot of different things throughout history about what this thing means. And they fought about it a lot. They fought about who is allowed to be here, right? This is so-called a open and closed table debate. Um, One of the other things I would do away with in this new Christian movement that I would start. Um, There's this great quote by a writer, and I think she's an Episcopalian priest, Sarah Miles. She, um, someone who famously wrote a memoir after she stumbled into this church in San Francisco as an atheist and took communion for the first time and sort of saw or received God in that moment. She writes in her book, Take This Bread, the entire contradictory package of Christianity was present in the Eucharist, a sign of unconditional forgiveness. It was doled out and rationed to insiders, a sign of unity, it divided people, a sign of the most common and ordinary human reality. It was rarefied and theorized nearly to death. At Root and Branch, we have what I would consider a radically open table Anyone is welcome to 
come up here and take bread and drink. Um, I don't care what you may believe, what you may identify as, Christian, atheist, uh, that's spiritual but not religious. Um, this table is for you, right? This table is for everyone in the world who wants a peace, right? At the welcome tables, we utter these words to each other, right? Our, this is our body. We give the loaf to our neighbor and say, this is our body because we believe that in sharing food together with one another, we are also offering and saying, uh, I want to be a part of your life, right? I'm sharing my life with you. We are in this together. On Sunday mornings, someone will come up here, Virginia's gonna do that today, and say a little thing about what communion might mean for them in that moment, right? And the explanations we've heard over the last five years have been very different, very varied, right? Someone talked about remembering the dead one time and thinking about all the people that they've known who shared this table with them in the past. I remember one who talked about how um, this ritual is a sign of peace or a a cry for peace for people who have literally had their bodies broken and their blood spilled. Right? There is no one true and wholly correct interpretation of this ritual. And so it would seem in this way that Root and Branch, we are here in the camp of Praxis, right? The orthopraxy camp. Um, I think that would be a fair assessment in some ways. But having said that, of course, we have to complicate it just a little bit that dichotomy um, between orthodoxy and orthopraxy is probably untenable in an age of disbelief. And I don't say disbelief um, as a pejorative or some sort of value judgment, just the truth of where we are in history. It's untenable because of that suffix ortho. Right? People know what that means? You're an English person? Okay, fine. <laughs> ortho? All right, whatever. It means straight, correct, right, right. The ortho part. I'm not saying, uh, I'm not one of these people who's like, it's all relative. Right? I actually think that's a kind of a lazy position, but certainly I think we can agree that the ortho part is something that we struggle with uh, a lot these days, right? That the authority structures that dictate our ideas of what is right and what is the right thing to do, what is the right practice, what is the right belief to have, uh, do not exist in the same way that they used to. There is some hope though for me. Um, I do think we have something of a map. I think um, there is a process that guides us. The rules of the game have changed over time, but we have coaches to help us along the way, to teach us new things, right? Jesus in this reading is one such coach. And what I hear him saying to me is that when people have a hard time figuring something out, get them to chew and munch and gnaw, right? Get them to do the thing that they do with an authentic, felt visceral hunger and intention, right? Something embedded into our physicality, the movements of our bodies during ritual stuff. But underneath, just underneath the skin as we are doing those things, there's always that complex and complicated mix of human crap, which is pain and hope, longing, hunger, maybe some gratitude, maybe a little love as well. There is no relationship with my father, my literal father. Um, 
if I do not fly my ass home and show up at that table, even as I know that that relationship isn't what I wish it was and may never be. And without recognizing that latter part, that complication, that complicated thing that is both beautiful and painful as I sit there, without experiencing it, without uh, sometimes crying about it, without talking about it, without feeling it, then all I am doing in that moment is sitting with a stranger eating a meal. It may be my favorite meal in the world, but um, as my therapist told me, in a way that someone says something to you that is shockingly upsetting, but because it's so true, um, she said to me, blocking out all those complications will never save your soul. I was like, fuck. <laughs> She's so true, right? Real quick sidebar, we support the idea that mental health is important, right? And I try to talk about therapy openly and we're destigmatizing this crap. I was on a dating app and I told this woman that I have like something about my therapy and she never responded. And I assume it's because she has a closed mind about that thing. <laughs> we are not those people. We talk about it openly, but anyway. So unless I show up and sit there with all that stuff, right? The rituals of this community, right? We take communion, we eat together, we uh, have conversations that are sometimes deep, sometimes kind of difficult, sometimes kind of boring, right? These things are sacramental to me, right? Sacramental sacraments are sort of a technical religious term that just means where we can see for sure the overt places where grace where God's grace shows up. By necessity, we have to work to find something to believe in alongside doing the things that make that possible. As with many things, my parents, um, relationships we have, religion, church, God, um, we exist in this ever complicated place of showing up to take a bite that is both good enough and not enough at the same time. And it sounds like a whack place to be. Um, perhaps we'd be happier if we were all born in the 1500s, but to me, it's actually very exciting, right? It's sort of a necessary place for us, a place where um, practice and belief can actually find some footing in a disenchanted world that we um, inhabit today, right? A place where God might show up again, possibly. That is good news to me. Amen.